Let's open these precious Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look again at that wonderful second sentence of the epistle with its great doxology to God and our Father and a list of 13 things that are the good things that make up the glad tidings of the gospel. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born again as the children of God, and while we are not there yet, and we don't see it yet with the eyes of our flesh, we have a hope of it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance of them. We have the reality in this gift that God's given to us called faith and hope. The evidence of things not seen. So though we haven't seen heaven yet, we have the evidence that we have this eternal inheritance because the Bible told us so. I believe it because the Bible says it. God said it. That settles it. When the Bible tells us what heaven is going to be like and this eternal inheritance. Let me comment briefly on our Savior being raised from the dead. The last of the five things of verse 3 by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see the connection? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He is the source and giver of the things that follow. The motive, which according to His abundant mercy, the act that takes us out of a state of condemnation into a state of salvation, out of a position or condition as children of the devil, and makes us children of God, hath begotten us again. To what does it leave us here in this world to have and to hold as assurance of what's coming unto a lively hope? And what is that hope based on? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because He lives, we sing at times, we shall live. He said in John chapter 14 and verse 19, Because I live, ye shall live also. And He is alive forevermore. When you read 1 Corinthians 15 last night, He appeared to the twelve, but that was later on. He had appeared to some women. He had appeared to Cephas. He had appeared to above 500 brethren at once. The residual power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ ripped open the earth. According to the Gospel of Matthew, there was an earthquake while He was hanging on the cross, and when He rose from the dead, the graves were ripped open. Residual power. Collateral damage. Collateral blessing. Collateral blessing. When Jesus was ripped out of the grave, did we sing this morning, He tore the bars away? When He tore the bars away, it ripped graves open, and dead saints popped up and walked into the city of Jerusalem... You say, is that really in the Bible? That is in the Bible. Amen. You say, how many times? It's only in there once. How many times do you need for something to be in the Bible for you to believe it? Once it's once is enough. It's there. That is the power of His resurrection. That same power was exerted toward us for us to be born again and to have the new nature that we have, which is why we want to be here. Did that singing about a land that is fairer than day and that we are passing away, did it bless your heart? Sister, I need to see your head a little... I see it. I know. It should bless our hearts. Congregational singing has no peer. The last thing I want to do is walk into a church and see some girl in a cocktail dress standing in the front with a microphone wiggling her hips back and forth with a spotlight on her. That isn't Christ. That isn't Christian. That that is of the world and that is paganism. That is entertainment. That is fables. That is wicked. I grew up seeing that junk. I'd play the saxophone when she wasn't singing. 
But that's all ridiculous. Congregational singing is what the Bible teaches, and it says that we speak and we teach and we admonish one another. And listen, hearing all of your voices, not some clanging, banging piano, all the piano is is an 88-key noise box. Listen, some of you can make pretty noise from it. I commend you. But it's an 88-key noise box. To hear the voices of God's people singing that there is something better than this life, oh, that... Am I alone? Or did that stir you all up? Now, I know that I am in the front row. And I'll say this again to my poor brother Mark. Every PU that you sit from the front is a 5% loss in sound. Just just a reminder. Because I just had a blessing. I just had a big blessing hearing that congregational singing. I've seen the other kind of singing. I've seen what they call special music. There's nothing special about it. It's nauseating compared to congregational a cappella singing. There's not someone trying to impress us with their organ ability by banging both feet and both hands on the keys and pedals of an organ. And then some amplifier in the back or the front blasting our eardrums with it so we can barely hear others sing. Or you know, now it's electric guitars and amplifiers, but I'm thankful for the congregational singing. That is one of the ways whereby we comfort one another with these words. Because we were singing about heaven. When you, if you go out of here and you turn on your radio, are you going to hear song talking about the worldly radio? You're going to hear songs about heaven. They're going to think heaven's on earth. They're going to be singing about things here that are not heaven. Oh Lord, thank you for that. Jesus Christ is very much alive. He showed Himself alive after His resurrection. The Bible says by many infallible proofs. There were so many contemporaries living at the time of Jesus Christ's resurrection when these Gospels were written. If they'd have known that Jesus had not been raised from the dead and there had not been sufficient proof, this Bible would have decayed and been blown into non-existence. It has stood the test of time because there were many witnesses to His resurrection. I love that residual resurrection that took place in the cemeteries around Jerusalem. And those saints coming to the doors. Don't you slow down enough to think about that? You know, here's great grandpa that dad had buried 40 years ago, or we could take someone 400 years ago, or a thousand years earlier, arriving in the city of Jerusalem. Because it says they appeared to many. There were so many proofs of the power of Christ's resurrection. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has destroyed the grave. He has taken the sting and the claim of sin and the law and blown them away. We can just pass into sleep. Our bodies get to rest for a while. Do you know the benefit of not having to go to work? There are no dishes in the grave. There is no time clock in the grave. It's called sleeping in Jesus. It's called taking your rest. Look at Isaiah 57. This is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 57. When someone dies before their time, and you know that they are righteous, then this is the text, one of the texts, that you want to go to. Isaiah 57, the first two verses. Isaiah 57, verse 1. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. No man thinks about it rightly. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. When a good man, and I mean good in the sense of the Bible's definition, dies early, it's because God is taking that man or that woman away from evil to come in their lives. Josiah was one of the great kings of Israel. Brother Newell's favorite... Change? No, still... Still favorite character from the Old Testament, he died early because God was bringing judgment upon Judah. See, there's more, there's more than meets the eye when someone dies. And you should keep that in mind. The righteous perisheth and no man layeth it to heart. No one figures out what is going on. Merciful men are taken away. That's a godly, one of God's elect. None considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Now here's what heaven's like for him. And here's what the grave is like. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. The spirits of just men made perfect are in heaven. Their bodies are resting in bed. You know, the last coffin I looked in, it looked pretty comfortable. Don't 
I'm not trying to be... Didn't it? Look decently comfortable? You know, and it looks like it'd be pretty quiet down there in that vault. Wouldn't have to hear the phone ringing or you've got mail. Just, well, it says he shall enter into peace. Amen. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Romans chapter 8. Oh, this is what the people of God should talk about more than we do. Yes. Let's not blame anyone else but ourselves that we get too wrapped up in too many other things. Let us rejoice in what's before us. And you know what? We're going to spend a lot of time thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ in this epistle because it is the gospel of hope. And Peter spends a great deal of time about the glory that's going to be revealed in us when Jesus Christ comes for us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead, that is the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. What does that word quicken mean? Make alive. Make alive your mortal. What does mortal mean? Dying bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Who is the source of resurrection power? The Spirit of the living God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. In Romans chapter 1, it says, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. It is the Spirit of God that raises the dead, and you have the Spirit of God in you. The power of resurrection is already resident in you. It is a lively hope that we have. There is a living power inside of you. You can go ahead and let that body go and say, Lord Jesus, receive my Spirit. That is the way to die. Acts chapter 7 is how Stephen died. Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. Leave the body behind. You have with you the spirit of the living God. And Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Well, how do I know if the spirit of God is dwelling in me? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, been baptized, and do you seek to please him in your life and bear the fruit of the spirit? The spirit is in you or you wouldn't even think of those things. Those things are the evidence of His existence and power in you. When you can, when you commit sin, are you convicted of it? Do you have a voice inside of you telling you that what you have done is wrong and does it lead you to repentance? That power is in you and that is the power of resurrection. If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And look what it brought forth in Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God can move upon your body. It doesn't matter if it's been dead for a thousand years and the robins have eaten it and the robins have carried it and dropped it in a windshield. The windshield was washed in a car wash on Woodruff Road and it was washed away and put down the sewer taken to a a, uh, watery, what's it called, water reclamation sewer plant uh, here in Greenville County. None of that matters because the Lord is just going to all put it back together by the Spirit of God who is able to move upon the face of the waters in absolute darkness and bring forth... It's pretty nice outside uh, in our earth. He's able to bring forth all that. He's able to bring forth our life out of a corrupted, decayed, dead body. Thank you, Lord. Now, with with what with that Romans 8... Now, I know I read it a couple times to you. To this point, I know when I read something to you, more than once. Romans 8.11. Now I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You know that in verse 3, we have an expanded version of what we have in 1 Peter 1. But look at how it starts. Now this is Paul. Did Paul and Peter think the same way? Did the same Spirit motivate both of them? Well, how do they, Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this one doesn't say, which according to His abundant mercy, 
it says, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And it goes on to describe all those blessings of being made accepted in the Beloved, verse 6, of the forgiveness of sins through His blood in verse 7, His wisdom and prudence that have abounded toward us in verse 8, and so forth. It mentions His inheritance in verse 11. Look at it. It says in verse 11, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will." Do you get ex- Your eternal inheritance is according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. You were predestinated to it. What is your destiny? An eternal inheritance. When was your destiny determined for you? Before the world began? Because you were predestinated. Your destination is heaven. You say, how do I know? If the Spirit of God dwells in you from Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Because look at if we keep reading, look at verse 13. In whom ye also trusted. Verse 12 was about Paul and the apostles who first trusted in Christ. Now he's talking to the Ephesians and to the church of Greenville in verse 13. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news or the glad tidings of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. And if you think that sentence is too long, you should slow down and appreciate it because it is a fantastic sentence. You have been purchased. By the precious blood of Christ and the cross of Calvary, you are God's in Christ and no one can take you out of Christ's hand and no one can take you out of God's hand. You are His and His forevermore and He is yours. You are a purchased possession. It says in verse 14, but the purchased possession needs to be redeemed. It needs to be bought back from corruption that is still living in this body. That is why in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 through 25 that we looked at earlier, and I am asking you to remember, it said that we are waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Because our bodies have been purchased right along with our spirits, and Jesus Christ is coming back for them to redeem them from the power of the grave. So you can go ahead and leave it there. Your spirit will be immediately with the Lord. Your body will be in the grave. It will corrupt. But God is going to put it back together and make it incorruptible. It's part of our inheritance. But notice, when there's an inheritance, when there is a purchase, and there's a purchase here, a purchased possession being your body, there is earnest money paid. Did you do that when you bought your house? 3% typical? 3% is typical in Greenville County real estate. If you buy a $100,000 house, you're going to put 3000 down. It's called earnest money. It means that you're in, this is deep, earnest money means that you are in earnest about buying that piece of property. And that you're going to perform by coming up with the rest of the deal. Now God has purchased us through Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, and He's given us an earnest of this purchase that He is going to complete the redemption process and that we will be with Him body, soul, and spirit. And what is the earnest? The Holy Spirit. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You say, well, how do I know that I have the earnest? I've already said, I've already said, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, been baptized? Repented of your sins. When you're convicted, you repent of them. You seek His face. You love His Word. Now, did you love the singing that we just had about heaven? Well, now, now see, when you start singing about heaven, the Holy Spirit is going to get, and I don't mean this in any charismatic way, and anybody who thinks that hasn't listened to me long enough, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. Right. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. And if we don't ever talk about heaven and the second coming of Jesus Christ, even that is dulling the Holy Spirit because the hope and future of the earnest of the seal that God has given us by His Spirit is heaven and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we want to exalt what the Bible exalts. We want to do exactly what these verses here are talking about, that the Spirit is our seal, and if the Spirit of God dwells in us, that same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is going to quicken our mortal bodies. 
You have within you the power of the resurrection that is coming, and you can know it by walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is bearing the fruit described in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Nine things. Bear them in your life. You can know the Spirit of God is in you, and you can know the, you are guaranteed for heaven. You have the seal of God. You know, imagine to yourself some great king in the past, the law of the Persians that cannot be altered, and he takes his signet and sticks it in the wax, and bang, onto a document, He seals that document up and it is settled. You're sealed. What's our seal? It's not a signet. It's not wax. It's the Holy Spirit in us that gives us a lively hope, a living hope that should be available all the time. Now when we just sang those songs, were you moving because of the beat? Did you enjoy it because of the beat? The rhythm. Did you enjoy it because of the melody? Or did you enjoy it because you heard a bunch of saints singing about heaven? And the melody and the rhythm was simply reduced to necessary parts of singing. I sent you a few weeks ago, and please allow me this little rabbit trail. I sent you a few weeks ago some German Baptist brethren singing. Arise, my soul, arise. I don't know if any of you even listened to it. You probably would have turned it off in a couple of measures. They consciously sing about three times slower than we sing so that no beat can develop in the human body. I love them for it. I've listened to it somewhere in triple digits. I know that sometimes that might put you to sleep if we sang every song that way but I appreciated the explanation for why they sing so slow that so no rhythm could get started that affects your body. It was purely a melody and words. Now, this is not an introduction to us changing anything necessarily just for you to appreciate and to ask yourself, why did the pastor like that singing about heaven so much? And did I like the singing about heaven? And why did I like the singing about heaven? Was it because there were a group of people singing like they really believed it that we're going to a land that is fairer than day? We are going to a land that is fairer than day. And we should sing about it. And it will affect our lives. And we should comfort one another with these words. We are going to go out of here in just a few minutes. And then we will be assaulted by all the inputs to us that the world has to offer. We have to retain that for our souls. I'm speaking to you about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that uh, He was raised for you by the seal of God, the earnest of the inheritance being within you, that is the Holy Spirit. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? The greatest testimony of the Holy Spirit, what He bears witness to, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we want to make our church Christ-centric. Everything about our church points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is what the Spirit of God bears witness to. Lord, help us to that end. The bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is so very important. As I told you before our break, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. It didn't matter where Paul was, he would preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be an apostle, what's the first and greatest condition that you had to meet or the prerequisite to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? You had to have been an eyewitness of Him risen from the dead because guess what a principal part of your gospel was going to be? Jesus has been raised from the dead. And I saw Him. And that's after you have raised the dead, healed the sick as an apostle. Even though you were a fisherman from the Sea of Galilee and everyone knew that you hadn't been past the third grade, when you raised the dead and you healed the blind and your shadow was healing people, and you said, I saw Jesus of Nazareth with my own eyes. There's a tendency to believe even fishermen. If you're born again. What what happened on Mars Hill when Paul brought up the resurrection at the end? Do you know how Paul brought up the resurrection at the end for those dear brethren? And I, I speak as fool. For those Greek philosophers... He said, God has raised Jesus from the dead to prove to you that He is coming back to judge you for your ignorance. 
but he mentions the resurrection of the dead and some of them mocked him. Some of those philosophers, <laughs> resurrection of the dead. But Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris got up and walked out and followed him. Amen. And so have we. And that's why we're here today. You understand in 1 Corinthians 15, when you get to verse 29, it says if they don't believe in the resurrection, it even messes up the ordinance of baptism. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why are you Corinthians still being baptized in a picture of burial and resurrection? No Presbyterian can handle the text. No Catholic can handle the text because it requires an immersion. Right. We're Baptists, brethren. We're Baptists and the Bible makes us be Baptists. We get to 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and we have to be Baptists. Amen. And if we, but if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, even the ordinance of baptism becomes meaningless. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 4. 1 Peter 1, 4. I'll just introduce it to you and uh, the Lord willing elaborate on it another time. Let's start with our doxology in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. It's taken me this long to get through the 5 of verse 3. It's going to take me too long to get through the 5 of verse 4. So let me just briefly introduce them to you. You have an inheritance. Amen. Let's forget grandpas and grandmas on earth and aunts and uncles on earth and fathers on earth. This is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus got the inheritance first. He's the first fruits of them that slept. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says us, says to us, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath made heir of all things. That's pretty good. God made Jesus heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds, and he has made him higher than the angels. The Lord Jesus Christ. He has everything. Everything is under the feet of Christ. We just don't see it all yet. But it is under the feet of Christ. The only thing that is accepted that is not under the feet of Christ is He who put all things under the feet of Christ. Which is how 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28 describes it. Since there the Apostle Paul is explaining to you, the word all does not mean all in this case. Otherwise, we'd have God under the feet of Christ. So He is accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, from the all. And uh, your uh, Romans eight says we're the joint heirs with Christ. He's inherited all things. Our our older brother, our preeminent brother, the firstborn brother. These are descriptions the Bible gives him. You say you're being disrespectful calling him your brother. Do you know what he says about that? He says he is not ashamed to call me his brother. Should I be ashamed to call him my brother? I'll also tell him he's my Lord and Savior at his feet. I'll also be like Thomas who doubted when Jesus wasn't there, but when Jesus showed up and said, Thomas, I need to see your fingers because I want to see them go in the holes. My Lord and my God. Amen. He, didn't, he didn't need to do that. He saw the glorified wounds and He said, my Lord and my God. We have an inheritance. Jesus has been made the heir of all things and we're joint heirs with Him. Of all things. What is the inheritance? A glorified body with a perfectly holy and righteous spirit in a renovated universe in the presence of God and Jesus with all things new and all negative things removed without sin or sinners, lust or loneliness, and enjoying a degree of glory never imagined by men. That's just a short little definition I threw together from a few places in the Bible. Uh, let me read it to you again. A glorified body with a perfectly holy and righteous spirit in a renovated universe in the presence of God and Jesus with all things new and all negative things removed, without sin or sinners, lust or loneliness, and enjoying a degree of glory never imagined by men. 
Because 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. We do not know what heaven is like. You can go ahead and read the metaphor in the book of Revelation that there is a tree of life blooming in all seasons that you can eat of its fruit and it's for the healing of the nations. You can read about streets of gold. All those are some little pitiful metaphors. You can imagine a street of gold. I want to tell you that heaven has things you can't imagine. Because I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. You know, since I was a little child, it's entered into my heart that the streets were going to be of gold. You know, when I was young enough, I was wondering how much I could get into my house. You know, have, for those of you who that have see, ever seen the wordless book, you know, it ends with gold page, because that's, but that's just a metaphor. That's just a metaphor. You know, I, because the Bible says the streets are gold, I'll take them. Otherwise, I don't care what the streets are as long as they lead me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope Amen. you're thinking the same thing. Wherever the choir is gathered to break forth into blessing, honor, glory, and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever, that's where I want to be. That's where you want to be. Amen. You know, as a child, we think about golden streets. And yes, the Bible says that. And the Bible says a great deal of things in a lot of metaphorical language. But listen, heaven is beyond that. Heaven is beyond your imagination. When the Apostle Paul came back from heaven, he had had a vision of heaven. He was taken into the third heaven. There's three heavens. There's the heaven where the birds fly. There's the heavens where the stars and the planets are. And there's the third heaven where God is. And Paul said he went to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because he was comparing his visions to those charismatics that had got into the church at Corinth. They thought they had a vision. Paul, This is how Paul deals with it. He says, let's come to visions and revelations. He's going through his resume, and they thought they had had some visions. He said, let us come to visions and revelations. I went to the third heaven. But when I came back, it was I couldn't speak. It was unlawful for me to speak what I heard and saw up there. That's an interesting uncle, isn't it? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He has an inheritance for us. It's incorruptible. Everything you know corrupts. Do you realize that? Everything you know corrupts. You know that you're corrupting right now while you hear that sentence come out of my mouth? You are corrupting right now. Your heart is weaker now than it was when you arrived, Adam Green. You can go home and take up whatever exercise form you want and take COQ10 or whatever. Your heart, we're decaying. We're, de we're corrupting right now. Our bodies are corrupting. Everything we know is corrupting. This building is corrupting. Your car is sitting out there rusting from the inside out. It doesn't matter how healthy, strong, or virile you are. You will die and corrupt. Right. You need to go to every funeral that you possibly can and look inside that casket and reach in there and squeeze their hand. Oh, that's okay. I didn't say move them. I just said feel that clay and know that's where you're going because you're going to corrupt. Everything corrupts that we know. Small business owners typically understate depreciation, which is constantly decaying assets. All your assets in a business venture are decaying. That's why you have an entry on the expense side of your income statement for depreciation because everything is depreciating just by existing because the bondage of corruption is upon this entire universe. Everything is slowing down, wearing out because it's corrupting. Do you understand depreciation? Every accountant in here does, but that doesn't mean very many of you. Every time you use a dentist, do you know why you have to go to the dentist? Because you're corrupting. Every time you visit a mechanic, something's corrupting. That's why you go to a mechanic. Every time you need a painter for your house, it's because of corruption. Every time you have a repairman for, for uh, appliances, every time you go to a shoe store, it's because of corruption. Everything is corrupting. The whole creation is groaning. But this inheritance, according to 1 Peter 1.4, is incorruptible. It does not have the ability to corrupt. It is above the power of corruption. It is incapable of corruption. Your body and everything in the universe, when Jesus Christ gets done with it, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no corruption. In a few minutes, let us sing 406 in our Burgundy hymnals, where the roses never fade because of words that are coming up shortly in this fourth verse. Incorruptible. Let me go on. And undefiled. To defile something is to render it 
foul, filthy, to pollute it, to dirty it, to destroy its purity, cleanness, or clearness. Jesus was undefiled, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. Marriage is honorable in all in the bed, undefiled in the sight of God, because God honors marriage sex. So he says it's undefiled, but I want to say to you that there's never been perfectly holy sex even between a husband and a wife in this world. Because two sinners having sex defile it. That is why Adam and Eve, the minute they ate of the fruit, they were ashamed of their nakedness because everything is defiled by sin. As far as the law of God is concerned and His approval upon sex in marriage, it's honorable and undefiled. But I want you all to think about the fact that even when you're praying, even when I was praying earlier, everything is defiled because it's a sinful man praying it. But I can't wait to be in heaven where I will never be defiled again. I will be undefiled. And everything there is undefiled. Nothing will be tainted. I will not be wondering to myself, is everyone in this assembly right now singing with pure and honest hearts? Like I have to now. Like I have to about myself. Did I just sing that song with a pure and honest heart with my only thought, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel? Everything is defiled that we know. You know, when I talk about that farmer going out, one farmer goes out and he's thinking thoughts of greed and lust and and and, and discontentment about his wife, about his tractor, about whatever. You know, we, we talked about the plowing of the wicked is sin in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 4. But when I talk about the righteous man, you know, no righteous man has ever plowed his field perfectly. Right. Yes, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. First John 1, 7. Right. Yes, but everything we do is defiled. How many of you know when you kneel down to pray, your mind wanders all over the place and you try to rein it in and control it because you are defiled with sin? You are talking to the most important being in the universe and you can't even hold up for a few minutes because we're all defiled. But there's a day coming according to this promise right here to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. No one will be there with false motives. Nothing will be done with false motives. There will be no hypocrisy of the greater sort or the lesser sort. It will all be undefiled. Thank you, blessed God. Then it says, and it fadeth not away. Everything and everyone that you know depreciates in glory and pleasure over time. Do you know that there's an expression that men have because they know this to be true? Familiarity breeds contempt. The more you have something, the less you appreciate it. Does Solomon agree with that? Does Solomon say that the full soul loatheth and honeycomb? If you're full, could I give you a a half a cup of honey? You know, that's the sweetest substance out there. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb. But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Have you ever, have you ever craved a new car? You finally got the car that you wanted to get. And about the 20th time you drove it, it, it dawned on you. It's just a car gets me from A to B. A house. Remember I've told you before, as soon as you sign your life away to the bank for your mortgage for your house, then when you take the walk through, you can write down a hundred things that you didn't see before. Everything fades away. Everything fades away, brethren. Everything that you know fades away. It applies to new jobs. If I have that job, I'll be happy. Oh, A few weeks in that job, you're floating your resume because you'd like a better one or a worse one or a different one. You know, church membership. People join the church. They're on a honeymoon, just like marriage. It's so wonderful. Everybody was welcoming us before we joined the church. Then we joined it. Nobody said anything to us for a month. Everything fades away. Even church, I'm I'm just being honest about everything. You know, for new members, I can help you over that little hurdle by it's your turn now to... uh, do something for someone else. New cars, new clothes. Oh, if I had those clothes, I'd feel so good. Pretty soon they're just hanging in the closet or they're at the second-hand store because you wanted to get rid of them. A new restaurant you go to. Oh, this is the best food I've ever had. You know, three times you've been, after you've been there three times, you're looking for a new restaurant. Everything fades away. Everything fades away in the pleasure that it's able to give us. Glorification, which is what our future is, and heaven, which is our inheritance, will always hold the power to please and never lose satisfying pleasure. 
rather than look at this phrase that fadeth not away as simply a repetition of incorruptible, we want to look at the breadth of Scripture, the breadth of it. What else could it mean? It means that this soul that is not satisfied for very long because it needs some new thrill in order to make it as happy as the last thrill is going to be always thrilled in the presence of God and Jesus Christ where the roses never fade. You know, roses decay on earth, but they won't decay in heaven. The joy or pleasure of anything will decline for us in this world with its use or time that we own it. Cursing possession. If you don't own it, you'll covet it for years. If you do own it, you're tired of it in weeks. How long have I told this church? How how many days or weeks does it take for the honeymoon to wear off and the work of marriage to set in? I'm waiting for a bold answer to say, days or weeks, Pastor? How about hours? The work sets in. Yes, but you planned for years how happy you would be in marital bliss. I'm going to rock her world on the honeymoon. She's going to rock my world. Yeah, but a few hours later, you're both trying to forgive each other and compromise and keep yourselves together. Because everything fades. Even us and our relationships. I'm going to tell you something. The honeymoon never ends in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb is simply what it's going to be like forever. We will not walk away from that and be disappointed in our bride, groom, the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Ever. Never. Don't even think about it. It's that fadeth not away. You know what the Lord Jesus Christ said? And and how He was able to go to the cross the way He did? Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, At thy right hand there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Is Whoa. I've never had a pleasure forevermore. I can figure out why this pleasure ain't worth having faster than probably anyone in here. That's what melancholies are good for. Figuring out why you shouldn't be having any fun at what you're doing. My, all my children know that. Dad can see something bad and something good better than anyone. But you know what? There's, there's coming a time and a place, our inheritance, where God will give us all things and it will never fade away. It is undefiled. It is incorruptible. It is inheritance. Do you know how much you have to work for an inheritance? It's just transferred to you. Heaven is an inheritance. It is simply transferred. What does it take? What are the means of an inheritance? What has to happen for an inheritance to be transferred from one owner to another? Death. The man who writes the will has got to die. How much involvement do we have in that transaction? Isn't that wonderful? That's how the Bible teaches it. Hebrews 9.15 says that by means of death, the New Testament was put into force. By Whose death? Not His death. He said, it is finished. John 19.30. And He was laid in the grave. And He rose from the dead and He sits at God's right hand, having made us acceptable in the Beloved and sent forth the Holy Spirit. He was called the Holy Spirit of promise because the promise of the Holy Ghost depended upon the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was resurrected and sat down at the right hand of God, He poured that out on the church. And pouring that out in the church proved that everything was in order and sealed to us. It's reserved in heaven for you. Would you look closely at this one sentence that we have, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Would you look at it closely and look in the middle of verse 3? In the middle of verse 3, does it say, hath begotten us? Us is a first person plural pronoun where Peter is talking about himself and his audience. Now as we progress down through this to the end of verse 4, reserved in heaven for us. Is that what it says? Or does it say reserved in heaven for you? Have we jumped to the second person? Plural pronoun? 
I love the Holy Spirit who wrote this book for us. I don't want it diluted with Peter. I want it. And don't take me the wrong... That was not necessary. I want it focused. The Holy Spirit wanted it focused. It is focused on you. Notice how it switched. This is in the same sentence. Peter is using the first person with us and he moves to you reserved in heaven for you. You have a reservation. You've been given an earnest of the purchased possession. You've been given a seal by God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's certain. And so we have verse 4, and we'll take it further next Lord's Day. Let's read it again, beginning at verse 3. Blessed. Are you going to go home this day and bless God? Are you going to take time to meditate on this sentence and bless God? Will you delight in God? This day, this week? Blessed. Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should bless Him. Which according to His abundant mercy, all of this is based on abundant mercy because we don't deserve a thing and nor have we fulfilled any conditions for it. It is by pure mercy according to His will hath begotten us again. We have been born again. We've been born twice. We are the sons of God. We are the sons of God in a stronger, more lasting, more permanent way than we are the sons of the parents that you think you have. We are the sons of God. Unto a lively hope. Jesus Christ has gone before us. He's planted it within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can have hope, abounding hope in you with the power of the Holy Ghost by believing these promises that are in writing to us. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The great example has gone before us. He's sitting at the right hand of God. If He's there, we'll be there with Him as well. He is our brother. We're joint heirs with Him. He cannot be separated from us. He will not lose a single one of us according to His promises in the Word of God. To an inheritance. We have an inheritance coming. It's glorification of our bodies. It's the presence of God and of Christ, the rulership of the universe, and heaven that cannot be corrupted, cannot be defiled, never fades away, and it's reserved in heaven for us. And we are kept by the power of God through faith. You need to believe what you have heard today, and the power of God will fill you with all joy and peace and hope in believing if you will believe the gospel record. The fifth verse is the practical phase of salvation. The keeping there is not keeping our names in the book of life. That's already been dealt with in verse 2, 3, and 4, where it's reserved in heaven for us. What is in verse 5 is to help these believers that were being persecuted and that were going to suffer in all five chapters of 1 Peter with the power of God based on their faith. Our eternal inheritance is not dependent upon our faith. What is dependent upon our faith is the full power of God in our lives to prepare us and equip us for victorious Christian living even in the face of suffering so that we can go through the fiery trial of our faith that is described in the next two verses because of the power of God within us. Let me give you a verse again in closing about that fifth verse. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing is a two-word little prepositional phrase like through faith. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power the power, the power of the Holy Ghost. As we believe the gospel record, and as we fall before God and He knows that we're trusting Him and we're trusting our Savior, He provides the spiritual power in us to have all the joy, peace, and hope of eternal life so that we have a seal of it in our own hearts whereby the Spirit of God testifies to us, Abba, Father, We are the sons of God. The Spirit of God that dwells in us raised Jesus from the dead. That same Spirit is going to raise us from the dead. We have great confidence of that. And verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, if you will keep believing and trusting God and believing His promises that are preached from His Word, then when Jesus Christ comes, that is the end of your faith. That's what faith is for. It's to get us through all the trials of this life because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And God sustains that, that even martyrs can die and mock at the pain because they know they have a better resurrection waiting for them. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Stand with me. 406. I am going to a city.
Yeah.